Greetings, everyone, from the Commonwealth of Quanta Society's talk show. I hope you guys are doing well. My show has been created to bring to light the need for a centralized culture in the African-American community and to show how many of the struggles in the black community are rooted in the lack of a centralized African-based culture in the black race as it exists in Western civilization and the Western Hemisphere. My name is Clarence Jones, your host today, and I will use this show to make a case for using the fall holiday of Kwanzaa as a platform for the many different types of black people to gather around. It would be turned into a year-round system instead of a once-a-year holiday. And so I, before I get into why I've chosen Kwanzaa and why I think Kwanzaa can be such a, an important functional tool that can aid the black community and then actually the greater America, I want to get into who we're, we're going to be referencing today, the book that I've been talking about and talking, reading excerpts from, I think the last two shows, I've had a great, um, a great time, a, a, a heck of a time just reading that stuff and going back um, on the stuff that I read like more than 20 years ago. And the book is Black Men, Obsolete, Single, Dangerous, The African-American Family in Transition by Dr. Hockey. I also want to get into Kwanzaa. Since we're talking about the importance of Kwanzaa, I want to go, I'm going to read the, uh, some of the Ngoza Soba, the seven principles of Kwanzaa, and go over today's uh, principle. And so the way I would like to execute Kwanzaa every day of the week would be utilized as one of the days of Kwanzaa, one of the principles of Kwanzaa. Monday would be Umoja, which is unity. Tuesday would be Kujagagila, which is self-determination. Wednesday would be Ujama, which is cooperative work and responsibility. Today is Thursday, which would be um, Ujama, cooperative economics. Friday would be Nia, being, uh, having a purpose. Saturday would be Kumba, creativity, with Sunday being Imani, which, of course, it's Sunday, a day of rest, God's day. Uh, in Kwanzaa, that would be a day of faith. That's what Imani means in Swahili. And so I think all of those seven principles are principles that all African Americans should be striving for throughout the week. So it doesn't have to be a simple uh, holiday celebration. It can be a year-round, everyday um, celebration or atonement or acknowledgement of these principles. And so now you would have all millions of black people in this mindset, millions of black people on a, with their own playbook. So let's get into, again, why Kwanzaa? Why do I think Kwanzaa can be so effective and so pivotal for the black community. Kwanzaa is African, but not specific to a particular tribe of Africa. So it is inclusive to all African peoples. Kwanzaa is a first fruits harvest celebration that does not infringe upon religion, nationality, or geography, or ethnicity. The African peoples need an ancestry-based system that all blacks can rally around. This would lead to better camaraderie, better familiarity, which would lead to better continuity, then would get to more camaraderie, which would lead to an enhanced ability to organize, 
coordinate, orchestrate, and of course the results of all these processes together are called what is called unity. Before I move forward, I'd like to get into camaraderie, how familiarity and camaraderie, camaraderie and continuity can lead to more camaraderie. It's just like a football team. And, and, and I, I wrote this in a book uh, that I wrote a couple of years ago uh, about systemized inclusion, how um, to win, you have to, once you're at a certain level of competition, it's really the little things that help you win as a professional athlete. I realized that. And the, the, sometimes the key difference, you know, two plus two equals four. But 2 plus 2.1 and 2 plus 2.1 added is different from 2 plus 2.3 and 2 plus 2.3. So 2 plus 2.1 plus 2 plus 2, you know, it, it, it adds to, I think, 8.2. Or not 2 plus. It, 2 plus 2 plus 2.1 plus 2.1 would equal 4.2. If you take that same two and give a 0.6 or, you know, I like, let's say 0.4. It's 2.4 plus 2.4. They're both two. And the answer with two plus 0.4 added to two plus 0.4 equals 4.8. Yes. <laughs> my 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 math my addition has fallen by the wayside as I've gotten older. But the bottom line, so again, two plus two two plus one plus two plus one point one, sorry, would lead you to four point two. And if it was point three, it would be it would be you know, it would be four point eight. You know, it's little nuances. Two is two, but there's a difference between 2.1 and 2.2. 2.1 added to 2.1 equals 4.2. 2.2 added to 2.2 equals 4.4. So those are little differences. The answer is four. In both instances, sorry to take up your time with, math, with mathematics, but at the NFL level, at, and I'm watching the Olympics now, at the highest level of competition, the difference between being great, being a champion, winning the championship is much smaller than people realize. And so I wrote a book on that, and, and that in many instances, and I feel the future of the country is, is – is headed is already in this direction. My belief is that the organizations, teams, countries, ethnic groups are the ones that are the most inclusive, that create the most connection with people, and they create that dynamic where people will go above and beyond for the success of your organization. That's what I believe. That's taken from sports and applied to the general public. I believe this will impact the whole world, not just in sports. And so, and I wrote a whole book on that, talking about my NFL experiences. 
I was in a situation uh, with the New England New, New Orleans Saints where I was doing my job, but I was playing a position that I was not. I was not in position to do what I was best at. I was a pass blocking offensive tackle. I was the right tackle, the right tackle in the National Football League in the NFL at that time. I don't know if it's like that this time. The left tackle, his most important thing is pass protection because he blocks the black. He 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 protects the blind side of the quarterback. The right tackle doesn't have to do that. He has to be a good pass protector, pass blocker. But his most important thing he needs to do is run block, drive block. So when the ball is handed off, that's where he's most effective and most important. Well, unfortunately for me, that was the weakest thing I did. Now, that had a residual effect on this team. I just talked about camaraderie and familiarity and continuity, which leads to more camaraderie in an organization, in a race, anything. With the New England, New Orleans Saints, I don't know, I keep saying New England, but with the Saints, my weakness became more pronounced and it impacted my dynamic with the rest of the team. And also, I was a good guy, so guys, you know, were rooting for me, but this is a business. This is not, <laughs> you know, this is not, this is not college. This is not some type of thing we're doing for fun. This, this is a business. Uh, it actually exposed if I'm not doing my job as effectively as I could be or should be, I'm impacting other people's jobs because I'm impacting our ability to win, thus impacting their ability to, to get to the Super Bowl. Um, a lot of negative things that come, come out of that. You know, change of coaching staff, means new coaching staff means new players. Even if you're good, you could be traded or cut. So my my deficiency in that area had re- reverberated throughout the whole team that I could remember. Now, also, it exposed the team as an organization because <laughs> it's kind of funny. Many of the people who were checking me weren't good themselves. So as an organization, we just were not very good as far as bringing the best talent in and putting people in positions in which they're doing their best and they're at that best so they, that they can be the most effective and impactful for the team. They did not do a good job of that. My, my situation was exposed. I had to fight to maintain my job for three years that I was there. They literally brought in a, a veteran to take my spot. I think he was a 10-year veteran. Uh, then my last year, they literally drafted a 10th-round draft pick. That's very high to, to draft at your position expecting him to, you know, he would be uh, in there in front of me. I beat him out, but clearly this organization was not happy with my performance. And now I kept trying to step up my performance, my character and integrity. I'm trying to go to the Pro Bowl. I'm trying to, I'm not just happy to have a job because I know the NFL doesn't work that way. If you're all pro, You've got job security. Everyone else is subject to being released, a cut based on maybe not, maybe not during the season, but at the end of the year when new coaching staff come in. So th- this was, uh, I call it um, organizational trust and camaraderie. So you have better trust when you know that person is doing their best and they're effective at their job. 
it impacts how you see that person. It impacts how you interact with that person, which ultimately impacts your overall camaraderie and, and, and execution as a team. And that's true in society, and certainly culture is pivotal to that. So when I talk about, you know, there's no system that helps black people to give that continuity, to give that familiar, familiar, familiarness, the familiarity, there are consequences to that. Because when those things are enhanced, it then comes back to more cohesiveness and camaraderie and trust and camaraderie, which makes a stronger unit and a stronger group in creating the word unity. So it's not just something we come together. Unity is not a word that, well, we're, we're together, we're unified. No, 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 no. Unity is like, I know this guy's got my back. I know if we go down, we're going to go down together. I know this guy's going to give me the best he's got, he or she has. I remember the great, uh, wow, this is, this is true. This is with, uh, I think this is with the Panthers. Uh, I'm in year nine. And actually in preseason, you know, for the superstars, the Willie Rose, the Deion Sanders, you know, I guess Tom Brady, your preseason is something you kind of get through. You don't want to get hurt. You want to get ready for the season. And that's true of me as well as a veteran. But if you're someone that's hungry and you're someone that's trying to um, step your game up, you're, you're a journeyman guy, but you want to be a high-end guy. You want to be all pro. Preseason is very big. Uh, in that. That's where you figure out, you, you try out new things. You see if your conditioning approach has helped you. You see if your new strength system has helped you be stronger. You work on with me different new techniques. I might have watched film of, of say, Hall of Fame Anthony Munoz, um, great lineman, or taking a, two, uh, a new, whatever new idea technique you have, for journeymen and non-superstars and anyone trying to get in the league, preseason is pivotal for that. And I remember it was like year nine, and it's preseason. And, and yeah, this goes into what I'm talking about, about trust and organizational camaraderie. I'm in preseason, and you're going against guys that aren't that great. So, And that's another thing. Everyone's trying to make the team, but you're not going against the all-pro. So this is a good time to try new things. And so I'm doing stuff. And I'm out there going against, I don't know, I think we were playing the Raiders or somebody. Whatever it was, I didn't see what I was hoping to see as far as my production. And I was really down. Now, it's preseason. The, the veterans and the starters don't really play. No one really cares. Just the people trying to make the team and the young guys that are really working hard in preseason. So I'm on the sideline, and I guess the great uh, Hall of Fame, Kevin Green, noticed you know, that I was little down in the dumps or pissed off. And he said, see, what's going on, man? You all right? I said, yeah. And I told him the truth. I said, bro, you know, it's year nine, and I just have not gotten over the hump in this business. And it was kind of a realization that I may never get over the hump. See, every, every athlete, Olympics, whatever, they keep working hard, working hard, working hard with the belief and faith that at some point this is going to pay off. You may, it may be at the end of your career you may get a gold medal. Maybe you may get a Super Bowl then. If you keep working, everyone believes that. 
and you wake up every morning of every practice, three, 365 days a year with this belief. And this was a, you know, it was, a, I guess, a melancholy time where it was the realization that I hadn't done that. It hadn't progressed the way I want. And I'm like, wow, it may not happen. This is year nine for me. And so I remember I, telling this to, I was telling this to Kevin Green, and this, is, and this is one of the great things about professional sports, and particularly football. I don't know how other sports, sports are. No one blows smoke up your ass and tells you, oh, you're going to be great and all that. And he, and Kevin didn't tell me that. He didn't say, I think you're going to be all pro one day. He said, man, I, I understand where you're coming from, Clarence, and I wish you the best. But I tell you what, I love that it bothers you that you're not where you want to be. That is the essence of team. That is the essence of camaraderie. That, now, Kevin Green was an all-pro, all perennial pro bowler. He became a, pro, a Hall of Famer. And uh, he was on the he, – he, I think he went to a Super Bowl. Yeah, he went to a Super Bowl with Pittsburgh and almost went to a Super Bowl with the early Panthers. This was a high-end player, and I wasn't. And so – what he was telling me is, I know I don't have to work, worry about you. I know whatever you put on this field, whatever you give me, you're going to give me your absolute best. So it makes his job easier. He doesn't have to worry about, you know, what Clarence is. If Clarence gets beat, it's because somebody's better than him. He's not getting beat because he hasn't worked hard. He's not getting beat because he hasn't done his homework. He's not getting beat because he doesn't care about being great. All those things are pretty evident in you know, me being in the state I was in in preseason, a time that means nothing to most football players that are established. Um, and so that is the essence of why culture, a central culture and a central playbook is so pivotal for any race of people. And so and back into my intro, unity has been a key ingredient that has been lacking in the black population, that has been at the root of many of its challenges and struggles. Uh, and it's hampered its ability to deal with adversity, struggles, and its enemies as one force. So, of course, I want to take this show today to make a case for the need of a central culture in the black population and for the practicality of using Kwanzaa as that cultural platform. I'm going to cite history, my personal life as a pro athlete, current events and books I've read as illustrations of that need of a central culture in the black population. And so now, a little bit different, I'm talking about the importance of a central culture and how Kwanzaa is, I think, can be utilized as one of those tools to help give the black community that. Let's get into those principles, or at least one. Today's Thursday. It's Ujamaa. This would be a day um, in, in the Ungoza Soba, and it's called Ugama. It means Cooperative Economics. This book was written by Rod, Tara, uh, Rod Terry. He had a law degree from Howard University and a prosecuting attorney for the District of Columbia. Hmm. He has a book. His, the name of his book is simply Kwanzaa, entitled The Seven Principles. And so today is Thursday, and to me is a day we would emphasize cooperative economics, Ujamaa. On the fourth day of Kwanzaa, 
Ujama, the second red candle is lit on the Kanara, which is the wooden, um, the wooden candle frame that's um, part of the celebration. Ujama stresses the benefits and advantages of practicing cooperative economics in the African communities. Ujama is based on the concept that African Americans must strive to build and maintain and support their own businesses. Ujama helps us to understand and appreciate that black empowerment can be accomplished only through group e- economics and a cooperative work ethic. Our prosperity pins, depends on our ability to merge our social, financial, and political resources to achieve common goals and shared benefits. Our economic resources should be kept and circulated within our community so they can uh, be reinve- reinvested in our schools, businesses, and churches. So this is a, a, a great acknowledgement how economic and cooperative economics and, and, and striving to start our own businesses in our communities and having them connected, meaning having a game plan, impacts schools, businesses, and churches. A new school of thought has recently emerged suggesting that leadership in the African-American community should be institutional rather than centered around a charismatic personality. Now, what Rod Terry means by this, um, it's almost like we have Dr. King, Martin Luther King Jr. We have Malcolm X. Marcus Garvey, these great charismatic leaders. We have even Barack Obama, we have Jesse Jackson. There's a sense that these great people are going to lead the people like Jesus. That's not how winning works. It really doesn't. And and look at and if you really want to look at it, Tom Brady is one of is considered the greatest quarterback in history, maybe the greatest athlete in his football player in history. Again, Tom Tom Brady. When they were the, the, the New England Patriots, they won three Super Bowls outright, three, three for three. And the shocking thing about that, which gets into systemized inclusion, I remember those Super Bowls. They were like the third of best, most talented team in the whole country, in the whole league. And, and they didn't win with Tom Brady throwing the ball. They ran, they won with running the ball, stopping the run. Physical approach to football, defense, and a run game, a dominant run game, and special teams. Team goals, they were three and three. Then they made the switch to Tom Brady, which you can't blame him. He was so, when your best player is your hardest working player, you, you kind of have to make that, that decision. And I think they had Randy Moss, that team that went undefeated, and they couldn't afford to pay both, so they paid Brady. At that point, they became Tom Brady and the New England Patriots. And they went to like six or seven Super Bowls. And clearly, Brady established himself as one of the greats of all time. However, they lost three Super Bowls. Tom Brady and the Patriots lost three Super Bowls. And they lost two of them to New England Patriot replicas, which is the New York Giants which is kind of a bizarre world. I think I've talked about this before. Basically, the New England Patriots were replicated from the New York Giants. It was Bill Parcells, his defensive coordinator, was Bill Belichick. So they took those same principals, players, and coaches to New England. And so, and they had amazing success with it. Dominant success. They created a dynasty. They were beaten twice by 
similar team. You understand? Similar approach team. So this is when, you know, the New England Patriots with Tom Brady and the Patriots, and they won with Tom Brady's arm. And so I Rod Terry is talking about this in this Kwanzaa book when he's saying the black community correctly needs to move away from institutional, needs to move towards institutional leadership rather than that charismatic single leader that's going to lead the people to prosperity and liberation. Teams win championships. Teams build societies. Teams build civilizations. Within those teams and societies and civilizations, there are clearly great individuals, Tom Brady being one of them. But the, the charismatic leader, unfortunately for the black community, puts all accountability to that one leader. It doesn't give accountability to everyone else working towards a cooperative goal. There is a direct correlation between cooperative economics and institution building. To build viable, influential, and strong institutions, this is Rod Taylor's book, and businesses that protect and defend our interests, what I've talked about in our show, protect and defend our interests. Only culture can do that. We must unite as a race and pull our economic resources, our influence in the United States and throughout the world depends on our ability to achieve economic empowerment. Now, all that sounds good in this book, Kwanzaa book, by Rod Terry. By Rod Terry. We talked about the black community not being good at military science and understanding the big picture. Traditionally, it's my observation, when black people talk about unity, cooperative economics, they tend to be talking about LeBron James and Michael Jordan doing something for them. That's not unity. That's not cooperative economics. Cooperative economics is all people coming together and creating wealth. You may have the education. He may have the income. But we are the masses, and it's how we put all those together as one entity to pursue one pursuit. That is what unity and that is what cooperative economics is. That is what a centralized culture can do. So this is an important point that the black community, from my observation, clearly has missed. When they talk about unity and they talk about cooperative economics, they're usually talking about what professional athlete, <laughs> what entertainer, you know, what those people owe the poor people instead of this is what we're going to collectively do. And so that's a critical factor. That, uh, and then this book, he does a great job of having great Americans and their quotes that are relative to the principle. So today's cooperative economics, Ujama, about economics, we have great African-Americans that have, have excerpts in this book. And so let's get to Booker T. Washington's excerpt. At the bottom of education, at the bottom of politics, even at the bottom of religion, there must be economic independence. And um, that's Booker T. Washington. So he was a great, uh, Booker T. Washington was a great man, uh, started Tuskegee Institution. He was a great self-empowerment, you know, empowerment person, self-made person, and gave great speeches on black self-determination and working together, starting your own businesses, uh, there was a little, you know, a little 
polar difference between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, but Booker T. Washington's point of view is definitely relevant today. Absolutely. Even though I didn't necessarily agree. I was, I'm from the Booker, I'm definitely from the W.E.B. Du Bois school of black intellectualism, educating ourselves and, 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 and uplifting ourselves. Booker T. was more fundamentally, we need to start our own businesses and if anything, show ourselves as enterprising and then white America would accept us. Um, that I, you know, I, you, we have some, you have factual history with Tulsa, Oklahoma and Rosewood where enterprising black communities were actually attacked by greater white society because they felt threatened by it. So, but his, his point of view of self-determination, empowerment, starting your own businesses, pulling yourselves up by your own, by your own bootstraps absolutely has relevance today. I don't think if we are growing as a society, as far as black people, I don't think there should be a choice between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. And actually that leads into centralized culture. I think back then and now there is a divide between those camps. A central culture would help those camps work together more efficiently instead of literally an ideological and an intellectual divide between the Booker T. Washington camp and the black intellectual elite camp. And of course, you can see that that divide in the civil rights movement with um, Dr. King being considered out of touch by many of the sectors of the black community, particularly the young uh, militant groups and the black church in, in many instances. So a central, yeah, that is absolutely an example of the lack of a central culture in the black race has, it creates that disconnect and opposition with groups that should be working together. Uh, Frederick, let's see what Frederick Douglass said about cooperative economics. When we are noted for enterprise, industry, and success, we shall no longer have any trouble in the matter of civil and political rights. Ooh, wow. So, uh, Frederick Douglass, the great Frederick Douglass said this. When we are noted for enterprise, I think that certainly Frederick Douglass was right. But again, there are, there's definitely historic evidence where black people organizing and coming together was seen as a threat to white supremacy and violent retribution was taken. So we, we need to not forget that. And, and, maybe, and maybe that's where central culture could have helped. So now you have your Malcolm X's, your, your, you know, your Bobby Seals, your Huey P. Newtons, your black militancy working, you know, with the other factors of the black community, you know, with your Booker T. Washington and your W.E.B. Du Bois, the black intellectuals and the pull yourselves up by your boot on bootstrap black people and the militant black people, you know, and so that's, the, again, Malcolm X, Marcus Garvey, if you put your hand on me, we're going to put our hands on you. So, or at least having some type of continuity, some type of game plan to defend our interests or protect it. And so a central culture did not have that. There was a divide there. So those are, those are great things. 
that are critical, uh, and I think today is a critical day, uh, not critical, but this, it's one of the, that's one of the important principles of Kwanzaa and cooperative economics. And so today we're now going to get into the book by Dr. Haki. And, uh, oh, before we get into the book, we talk about, um, well, I still have to finish my, uh, my intro because there's some other issues that need to be discussed. So um, I'm using that uh, to show the need for a central culture in the black population. And so one question is, if we're talking about culture and how important it is, how impactful it is, on society, on any ethnic group, you know, what is culture? And so simply put, culture is a playbook for an ethnic group. And without culture that Dr. Hockey gets into in his book, hopefully, uh, I think we're going to get into it immediately, um, without culture, any ethnic group race is virtually defenseless within the reality of other ethnic groups having their own plan, game plan. And it goes to, uh, I, I talked about this weeks ago where my, my buddies went to some fair, some little fair, and there were a lot of Latinos, Central Americans at that time migrating to Long Island. And they weren't Puerto Ricans, they weren't, they weren't uh, Mexicans, they were Central Americans. So they had a oneness to them that actually was referred to, was talked about by Dr. Thomas Sewell, that one advantage that other ethnic groups have when they come to America that aids them in their ascension is that they tend to come from the same parts of countries and they tend to migrate to the same parts of America, giving them a condensed unity and intensity that other operating groups don't have. So yes, they're poor. Yes, they came here because they didn't have opportunities uh, with where they came from, but they are all tend to be from the same place. They have a continuity that we talked about that the other poor ethnic groups who are already there probably don't have. And so this is a dramatization of that at this little fair where my buddies were, I guess they were picking on some dude. And one of, the guy, one of my guys who was a punk, was picking on a Central American and showing off in front of girls. It was like five of them and ten of them, whatever it was, showing off in front of girls. So the guy didn't want to fight him, but once he found out he was in danger, yelled something in Spanish, and everyone at the fair, everyone at the, at the park, it wasn't a park, it was like a little flea market type of, you know, traveling um, show type of thing. You know how they have the, the little fair, a fair type of thing where they have the little rides and stuff and foods, usually family oriented, but a lot of high school kids and college kids flock to it too. Whatever it is, when, when that guy realized he was in danger, he yelled something in Spanish and the whole fair turned on all of my guys. And so they were lucky that, uh, <laughs> They they must be good. The, the, the Central Americans must have been Central. Uh, yeah, Central Americans were good guys because so they let them go. They were going to literally let them fight them one on one 
fight the guy one on one. But my guy, the guy, one of my friends didn't want to fight him because he was a punk. <laughs> but that's what we talk about when we talk about unity and the continuity and the advantage that newly arrived uh, immigrants have over existing, you know, lower level or poverty stricken Americans, meaning those, those, the, the blacks, Puerto Ricans tend to not have that continuity and unity in them that the Central Americans, uh, Koreans and Chinese have when they get here that allows them to ascend in America quicker and better. Realize that some of them, definitely the Koreans, literally have their own banking system. They literally have a, their own system that helps them buy property, that helps them buy businesses and put uh, themselves in these businesses. They literally have that. I don't know if uh, Central Americans have that. I don't think so, but I know Koreans have it. And actually, Jamaicans try to do stuff like that as well. Chinese, possibly. So these things are an advantage. Uh, so that's what culture is. And not having it makes you virtually defense, you know, defenseless, to be honest. So, and we have examples of culture help, cultures helping people. We have to look at, um, you know, the, when you look at the Korean, you see where centralized culture helps them. We will now look at the lack of a centralized culture, how a lack of a centralized culture has hurt the black community. Okay. And so this is the typical stuff I get into. Uh, the black civilization. And so the author, Chancellor Williams, wrote in his book, The, Dis the Destruction of Black Civilization, that the West African population that occupied. Uh, the the rest oh the West African population who occupied that area were in fact refugees of East Africa. That's interesting, and I always read that and, and and I wrote that and talk about that, but I really haven't gotten into that. The fact that we can trace the roots of the West African population back to East Africa basically acknowledges that the black population in Africa had an inability to control its environment, even from East Africa, where it originated against. So if you have to leave, you clearly can't defend, control, or maintain the area that you're in. Uh, there must be a reason for that that needs to be looked at. And I kind of never looked, thought about that until just now reading it. But anyway, the West African population that we see in Nigeria and Ghana are actually from East Africa. This is where they built their own single societies and civilizations with an unknown central language and culture. Uh, because of natural disaster and the migrations of Arab populations from Asia, Asia Minor, they began migrating across the continent to, Western, to the western part of Africa. As this happened, they began splitting up into different groups in West Africa, forming their own tribes, with their own tribal languages and cultures, with one African country having up to 100 tribes in it, having no central state, uh, European incursion was unchecked, and, in, and literally instead of unifying to deal with uh, that common threat, 
that posed to the region, region. On the contrary, they began infanticidal wars to essentially help the slave trade. So this was, was not a smart move on that point. And let's, this is a great, um, segue for me because I can get into other regions of the world that had a similar problem and, um, they had dire consequences from this. I read the book, The Mayflower, which was a great book that I did as an audio book. And in the book, The Mayflower, it, it tells about the pilgrims and, you know, they came here, met the Indians and they had Thanksgiving feast and we all learned to get along. <laughs> and, and that was the start of America, Jamestown. And of course that was not the start of America. It was an incursion by the white population into Indian territory. And to make a long story short, basically the Puritans were very expansionistic. The Puritans felt threatened. They were working with the, with the Indians, but they suspected the Indians were going to betray them and try to overthrow, not overthrow them, but they, they felt that the Indians were going to attack them. And they, it's military science, so they felt that they were going to be betrayed and, and, and overrun and ambushed by the neighbor, in, neighboring Indian tribes. And so they hit first, which is actually smart. They ended up um, getting the upper hand on the Indians I think their assumptions were correct that it, the Indians were going to attack the white settlers. But here's the problem. Since they made war on that exi existing tribe, whoever it was, I don't remember the name of the tribe, they attacked that tribe and subdued them and destroyed them. Since they were already moving, they then attacked another tribe who was a bigger economic. The tribe was not plotting against them, and the, the, the second tribe was not even a threat to them militarily. But the white settlers realized that this tribe was a threat to them economically. So in an expansionist move, once they organized and got militarized and got you know, moving to attack the first Indian tribe, they then attacked the second tribe since they had all their forces armed and, and mobile. And so this was a, this was a, again, the number two tribe was not, had no intentions of attacking them, but because they were a strategic economic threat to the settlers, I don't know how and why they simply attacked them. Now people may say this is wrong and unfortunate and what have you prior to this, the whole point was we're here just settling, trying to make a way for ourselves. We're just white people <laughs> trying to create our own colony and, and we don't have any problem. We don't have any intentions of upsetting the natural order of things on this continent. So they said, so they said, and that's how they operated until that attack. Once the settlers attacked both Indian groups, they basically threw their hand, they basically showed their hand, which is we're going to take over all of this. Truthfully, the dummies are the Indians. 
once the, the white settlers establish themselves, because now if they're making money here, they're not going to not, they're going to keep coming. There's going to be more and more white people coming to where this becomes theirs, which is what happened. This is what happened when the settlers were allowed to make an incursion. Now, if they had just settled there and lived there um, and, and, and coexisted with the Indians, there wouldn't have really been much that anyone could say. Once they attacked both Indian tribes, with one clearly not plotting against them, one clearly not uh, any military threat to them, that kind of showed their hand. And that made the white population, the white settlers, and whoever was coming behind them a threat to all Indian existence in North America. So now the onus is on the Indian tribes of North America to unite to kind of repel or at least control white settlement. They never really did that. They made attempts, but they never, because they were different tribes. So they were essentially different people. This was true in, in North America. This is actually true in China, which allowed little England. This was true in, in India. Small island nation empire India control India, uh, England. Small island nation England control India and China at the same time. Both countries were 10 times bigger than England. The only way they could do that was, was, was the lack of a central culture, the lack of one people on this land. And so this is evident in Africa. So a lot of the problems stem from people not working together to protect their own interests and this is definitely an example of that. Uh, another consequence, so basically, the impact societal wars essentially aided uh, the white incursion into the African area. The consequences of the black man, and of course, the, another consequence is that the black man went away from running and controlling his own societies with the, because you got to realize what happened, African, the, the, the African slave trade created the imperial, colonial European powers that then came back and took over all of Africa. So they had the slave labor in North America, making them wealthy. Then they colonized basically Africa uh, because they became powerful nations that had armies and, and technology that the Africans didn't have. So there was a consequence for not being unified uh, that they had to, to, to suffer. And another consequence was the black man not maintaining and running his own civilizations and societies and becoming remedial in the area of military science, which is power creation and acquisition and understanding um, very little of, of how they work, making him vulnerable to predatory ethnic groups and marginal and a marginal ally at best. The so-called black community is quick to antagonize and alienate and disrespect one another with an emphasis on not being disrespected. This ecosystem of hostile discontinuity manifests itself in what I call black zombie nation. Now I want to talk about that. Military science. Let's talk about military science and its relevance. 
And, and the Mayflower is a perfect example of military science, as well as West Africa. Military science is understanding the chessboard of society, how to win, how to maintain. Uh, sometimes military scientists, we can't win, but we can maintain. We can't win, but we can be a part of it. Jews took that. They didn't need to conquer, but we, we can become the tradesmen and, and, and the middlemen in your economic system, having value to your, your economic and political economy, making them valuable. Jews have taken that. And, and then there's other ways of military science looking at these people pose a threat to us. We need to unite and keep them from posing that threat. So in Africa, you're looking at 100 different countries in one country speaking different language. So from a military science point of view, the ability of the Africans to come together to keep predatory European slave people from taking their, period, their people was not very strong because they were not one people. Same thing with the Indians as far as military science. Military science, you know, simple science in coexisting is there's settlers and they're here. They Jamestown, they have a first settlement. They're nice people. They farm and, you know, they're nice neighbors. Military science is, and I guess the, the, the white settlers were, were strong with their military science. This is fertile land. There's a lot of money and wealth to be created and, and, and made from this land. These Indians pose a threat right now, but if we keep coming here and keep expanding, you know, there's too much, there's too much opportunity here to allow these natives to get in the way of it. So from a military science standpoint, from this white settler standpoint, that makes countering any India, Indian aggression, it makes that viable, but it also makes that second group who wasn't attacking them viable option because they are an economic rival to the settlers. And so if you're from a military science standpoint, if you want to control and take over this area, that second group of Indians, even though that second tribe of Indians, even though they had no intentions of attacking the white settlers, even though they were not a military threat, they had their own economic system that was sustaining them, they still were a threat to the expansionist aspirations of the white settlers. So even though you haven't done anything to me, even though I haven't done anything to you, we expect to control all of this area in 100 years because there's a lot of wealth here for us. That's where they didn't understand. So that's military science. And that's where the black man fails and, and has failed historically and actually still fails. And so, and that's what I call black zombie nation. I'm going to talk about something I observed this weekend. Wow. I talk a lot. It's 52 minutes. <laughs> I'm still not getting that much, getting into uh, Dr. Haby's book. Oh, well, but I'm making some fun points and I think I'm making some valuable points. We're talking about the black man's inability, the consequences of him not running and maintaining his own civilizations. He has no understanding of power, how it works. He values things that aren't valuable. 
the mating rights are more important than than controlling his ecosystem. Uh, he he, he his physical prowess is more important to him than education and information. And so, which is interesting, the white man, on the contrary, is the opposite of that. One thing that the white man has shown throughout history and now, he values teamwork, preparation, education, execution, and, um, and innovation at times. That allow, that gives him an advantage in civilization building. And so African-American males don't necessarily value that. And you can see it. I just, uh, and, and it's evident in this thing I'm, I observed this weekend. I went to a political meet and greet this past Saturday. I see the things that are going on in the country. I don't, I'm not too happy with all of them. Uh, at some point, you need to look in the mirror and say, okay, what are you doing to try to help? What are you doing to try to say, okay, we want to pursue our interests? Um, you know, with us, with the black community being so dispersed, it simply makes it, makes it easier for people to usurp power from us, and they don't ever really have to deal with us on an equal footing anyway, even if they did, don't have to. They don't have to worry about us. And so there are no consequences in any way. So part of that is the lack of activity, the lack of uh, preemptive political, social, and economic uh, activity in the black race, in the black community, which would stem from a centralized culture. So when someone told me we're having a political meet and greet, I took it upon myself to say, okay, you need to go. You, you're the one guy complaining. We're not doing this. We're not doing that. Well, you need to get more involved. So I was concerned with the COVID, but I, you know, I masked up and I went. And so this is what I observed. There were uh, people there. There were black men there. And uh, I remember getting out of the car, seeing a, a black gentleman, my age, a little older. I can't tell the difference, but a grown man. He gets out of his car. He has a, has a, I was concerned about what to wear to this function because I hadn't been to any in so long. And, you know, I just walk around in my sneakers. I'm basically retired. And uh, I get stuff for my kids, you know, expensive stuff as far as clothes, clothing. My mindset is that's something I could get for my daughter or son. So I have all these suits in my closet that I rarely wear that have kind of worn out anyway. So I was really con actually concerned about not going that about going to it and looking out of place. So I went and bought shoes, bought slacks, and brought a shirt, college shirt. I didn't feel like I needed a tie, a shirt and tie. I didn't, I didn't think that was necessary. It was just a simple meet and greet. It wasn't a dinner or anything like that. But I knew I didn't want to be out of place. And to be honest, as a black man, I didn't want to be out of place. And so, and I don't think that's a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. I've been taught by my father and what have you. But what ended up happening, I'm a sweater. <laughs> so I, I'm getting ready to go. And I'm like, I put on the collar. So oh, I'm sweating too much. They're like, nah, I can't do it. You know, I'd be, I'd have anxiety. Uh, the sweat would probably go away. But I said, you know what? I'm going to wear the slacks and shoes. And I'm going to put on a kind of a, a 
a T-shirt type of dress type of T-shirt, a nice T-shirt that are kind of expensive that guys wear with slacks and shoes. So I did that. I felt better, felt more comfortable. You know, if I feel, I, and I had a plan. If I didn't like the way I felt and looked, I was going to go there, meet and greet, and leave. Because one thing I do, I'll be in there sweating. If I'm, if I have, if I'm anxious, I'll be in there sweating bricks and I'll be uncomfortable. So I was going to go there, do the right thing, meet and greet, maybe ask a question or two, and get the, get up out of there. Anyway, so I go there, and of course. Everyone's wearing everything, but I see a couple of black men, and they do the traditional black man approach to doing stuff in public. And, and this is not wrong, and I'll say this: this is from my father's generation, anyway. Um, black men, something for the church, something for the community, something uh, for a political function like this. They're going to wear a suit and tie most black men over the age of 40 and actually even young ones too. It's very important to them that you look appropriate. You look professional. And literally if you come there as a black man, not they are going to be looking at you funny. Like didn't your father teach you how to act and didn't your father teach you how to dress around a function like this as black men, we need to have a certain standard. That's not the end of the world. And that's definitely old school. And it's definitely, and it does, it does send a message. If you're not properly dressed, it does send a message that your value system isn't that strong, meaning you don't know, you know, this man in this suit and tie acknowledges how important this meaning is by the fact that he's dressing appropriately for it. So there's nothing wrong with that point of view. Here's where it's outdated and contributes to black zombie nation. The black man not understanding power, not understanding the ecosystem he lives in, not understanding military science, and valuing things that aren't as valuable as you think. Okay, so I said, most of the black men had suits and ties on. I didn't. I still felt fine. There were another, a couple of brothers in there who, you know, just were sitting there comfortable, but you can tell he thought himself like, yeah, this is what you're supposed to be. Now, mind you, mo- no one in, this, in there was dressed um, professional other than the black men. And there was an African-American woman who came in there with a jacket on and, and very casual herself. Now, I ask you, as the people listening to this show, we now live in a new generation a new reality where who's the fastest growing business starters in America? Who are the fastest growing segment of people graduating college in America? Who's the the bulwark of a lot of political parties in America, but African-American females. When we look at this picture of black men in suits and ties, at this political function, and the African-American female dressed completely casual, just a a jacket and jeans, based on what's factually going on in America, what is the chance that that black woman has her own business and creates jobs for other people? What is the chance that these black men with all their suits and ties, looking professional, 
own their own businesses and are giving people jobs. And, you know, one thing that a business owner can do, they can give people jobs, they're independent, and they can donate money to what? Political parties, giving them influence on the government. Black men at this political function making sure they have suit and ties is relevant 30 years ago. It's not that relevant today to the point where my money is on the black woman in jeans, completely casual as far as who owns the business, who's doing something professional. My money's on the African-American female as opposed to the black men in suits. That's black zombie nation. That's black people not understanding power, how it works, and how it can, can help and how it hurts them. We have a value system that does not serve us. We have a value system that serves other people. And a central culture is a critical factor in that. And, um, wow, still going long. I have to start with <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Hakey's book. Okay, wow. Wow, we're at the end. Um, so I'm still going to get into Dr. Hakey's book, Black Men, Obsolete, Single, Dangerous, The African-American Transition. And so he talks about culture in here. He talks about, no, he talks about sleeping hours on page 62, sleeping hours and confusion about existence and white supremacy. So this chapter is donated to that, basically talking about what I was talking about, military science and the importance of culture. And so we talked about culture before. Um, it's survival. I want to get to one part we hadn't gotten to on page 64. I'm going to read this excerpt from Dr. Hockey's book. For, for instance, the philosophy of white supremacy or white racism is both biological and cultural. Diop, uh, citing Diop was a great black intellectual, Welsling, black female intellectual. Europeans, the white race, upon discovering that other people and cultures existed and flourished independently of Europe and realizing that they were Europeans, were indeed a numerical uh, minority, developed a system of thought and action that would help to guarantee white survival and the development at the, same, at the same time put white people at the center of the world, indeed the universe. This system of thought essentially stated that white Western European thought and action was right, necessary, best, the only way to correct powerful, um, the, only way, the only way correct powerful, godly, clean, efficient, beautiful, etc. From the prehistory of white, of the rights of uh, from the prehistory of the white race, all, the, all their support systems began to confirm that white European is the past, present, and future. The scholars, religious leaders, politicians, scientists, educators, military, and businessmen of the white race took this message in book and gunpowder to all, <laughs> in book and gunpowder to all parts of the earth and physically and mentally forced inferiors to accept. Therefore, this European frame of reference, which is diametrically opposed to most things not white, spelled the near death of many non-white peoples and cultures worldwide. Fanon, uh, Fanon, oh, Franz Fanon, 
Okay. White world supremacy, white racism, emerged as an effective survival defense mechanism for the development and perpetuation and maintenance of white political, philosophical, and scientific and military thought on an international or on an intentional or on an international level. All the people who had the misfortune of being conquered and absorbed by the culture of Europeans or their children, the Americans, have the thousands have for thousands of years been reacting to white supremacy. The extreme survival expression of a people who are less than 11% of the world's population. Ah, the works of Chancellor Williams, who I just read, uh, John C. Jackson, Yusuf Ben, Dr. Ben, Francis Welsing, uh, Neely Fuller, Shakia Diop, John H. Hope, Hal Cause, Shawan Malenga, James Spady. Uh, wow, he's citing a lot of great intellectuals. Um, Others have documented the most ancient as well as current racism. Any meaningful discussion of the black situation in the United States must not only understand this systematic pattern of thought and action, but must be sensitive to how it, white supremacy or racism, has been integrated into the entire life of African people and has intimately affected black people's interaction amongst themselves as well as with other cultures and races. Okay, so in a nutshell, this is a lot of great stuff that Dr. Hockey talked about. Basically, being black in this white-dominated ecosystem teaches blacks to hate being black. It teaches black that anything like black is superior to being black. Um, here's where I think culture enters into economics. First of all, if you're selling to people who have the money, and they're white, everything you're selling is going to kind of be geared to white, all right? If you're an ethnic group in a third world nation in any hemisphere, Africa, Asia, Central America, Latin America, when the wealth comes into your country, it controls your country. So now the question is, why aren't you creating wealth for yourselves? So that's a factor here. So I think that's old 60s ideology, which is correct, that talks about white domination and white supremacy, but also when we're talking about empowerment and what a centralized culture can do, first you have to understand economics in general is about making money for whoever's in control. It's about making money for whoever has money to invest. If those are typically Europeans, then the whole system is geared to making money for who? Europeans. Even selling. You know what I'm saying? So that, that I think that's a new approach we need to bring to, um, to the, 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 the black liberation movement of today compared to the 60s. The 60s and, and our great intellectuals, those are amazing heavyweights. He just cited He's citing great black intellectuals and historians. Instead of taking the moral stand about racism, and there is clearly a morality to it, or the lack of morality, we need to look into the fundamental benefits of business cooperation and economic cooperation and how culture is at the root of that. That has been missing. 
and it's been missing with other ethnic groups. So you can't tell me that the Japanese wouldn't do exactly what Western civilization and Europeans did if they were in their position, which they actually did exactly the same thing. When, when the empire of Japan became powerful, they actually did a lot of the same things that Western, you know, that Westerners and white people did as far as, and actually trying to put themselves at the, the, the head of a Asian empire that they would be over the Chinese, Koreans, Filipinos, Hawaiians. They would control that Pacific and they would be at the head of it. Uh, to be, well, one reason, because their numbers were smaller. And so instead of taking the moral look, we need to take a more military science look at uh, the effect of culture and the lack of culture, the effect on economics. And as, as was stated from the book, economics literally affects your schools, your churches, your businesses. Culture affects all those things. Your, your schools, your churches, your businesses, your economies, your community. So not having a central culture keeps you from maintaining and, and making any of those things dominant and effective. And I think we should be focusing on that. And this book gets into those things. Um, I did not get into the book as much as I wanted to this week, but I still think the stuff that I talked about was relevant because it was, it was relevant to black domination. It was relevant to the value system of black people, particularly black males, that is not strong towards winning. It's not headed, it's not geared towards winning. It's that simple. And it needs to be. So uh, that's it for me this week. I appreciate your time. Uh, blessings to everyone listening. And this is Clarence Jones from the, the um, Kwanzaa Society, uh, the the Commonwealth of Quantum Society's talk show. You guys have a great week. Talk to you later. Bye.